Oh, hi. You stumbled across Beauty Reform School, the podcast that explores beauty, style, reinvention, self-care, all from the perspective of the outside looking in. We pick apart the classics so we can confidently break the mold. And I'm your host, Bad Bad, the artist, the educator, the retail grunt, the problem child. The one who's done it the hard way for decades, and now I'm passing the savings on to you. So bring me your tired, your confused, your weirdos, your others yearning to breathe free. If this sounds like you, grab your pen and grab your scratch pad, and let's figure this crap out together. Right here at Beauty Reform School. saying that beauty is pain and as I was going through some articles looking at horrific things that people did along the way I thought it was fitting now that we're coming upon Halloween to talk about some of the beauty horrors so stay tuned this episode, this horrible episode of Beauty Reform School. Welcome to today's podcast. Put on your comfy socks, grab a blanket, pop some popcorn, perhaps some warm apple cider or a hot toddy, and come close so I can tell you some terrible tales of beauty in history. These in particular, I've gotten off the mentalfloss.com website, and this article is by Therese O'Neill. She has listed some horrors that I'm going to read to you. Some of them anyway. Number two on her list was eating arsenic. In the 19th century and earlier, some people, mainly in Styria, a region that encompassed parts of modern Austria and Slovenia, consumed arsenic to produce a blooming complexion a brilliant eye, and an appearance of embonpoint, I think. Sexy stoutness, that's what it was called. According to one 1857 magazine article on the practice, there were safety rules, of course. You're only supposed to take it while the moon was waxing, and you could only eat a dose as big as a single grain of millet at first. And if you took more than that before you build up a tolerance, you could die. Once you began eating arsenic regularly, though, if you ever stopped, you'd suffer from a painful withdrawal symptom like vomiting or muscle spasms. But wait, there was another downside. 
because arsenic interferes, iodine necessary for thyroid function. Eating it gave people goiters. And you know what goiters are? If you've ever seen one of those pictures of someone with a really big lump in their throat, just like the size of a softball, goiters. But they were brilliant and blooming and embon point goiters. So, basically, you'd have a blooming complexion, which I'm really not sure what that means at all. I'm assuming rosy cheeks, but, you know. And I have no idea what a brilliant eye means, except to think that maybe they mean glassy. And I probably will never know what sexy stoutness is. But if you want any of those things, you, back in the... 1800s, you could feel free to uh, ingest a little arsenic on a regular so you could look rosy and glassy all day long. Apparently that was a thing. It's not that far-fetched. I mean, we still have people in this decade putting suction cups on their lips so they'll have fat lips and we have people wearing waist trainers again so that they can have teeny teeny tiny waists that are abnormally small and we all know that corsets were a huge thing for a long time but while we are on the subject of corsets the people in the 19th century did that quite often trying to get that magical teeny whittled waist but it warped the ribs it misaligned the spine it caused muscle atrophy uh, the back wasn't going to be able to the muscles in the back wouldn't be able to support your body weight well without the use of a corset over time so I'm not saying that these waist trainers today are worse I'm not saying that at all I'm just saying that everything has a reaction just saying In the early 20th century, before anyone knew about the health risks of radiation, radioactive consumer products were all the rage. And in the 1930s, an enterprising doctor named Alfred Curie capitalized his association with the famous radioactive researchers, who he definitely wasn't related to, to launch Thoradia. They called it Thoradia. No shame in their game. Okay? It was a French cosmetics brand whose products featured radioactive chemicals like thorium chloride and radium bromide. And advertisements for its face cream claimed that the radioactive formula could stimulate cellular vitality and firm up the skin and cure boils and pimples and even out redness and pigmentation, which, quite frankly, I would think that would that would hike that up. But, you know, what do I know? And it said it would erase wrinkles and stop aging and help retain the freshness and brightness of the complexion. It's all vitality and brightness until someone's jaw falls off. Ooh, Therese, you, you're wrong for that one, Therese. Now, hopefully, I don't have to tell you that using radioactive products or toxic products 
are not good for you when it comes to chemicals. But nowadays, the way things go, it's either you're in two camps. You're in the camp that's trying to use clean beauty and do all kinds of things that are healthy for yourself or with the for the right price and the right promise, you'll go ahead and dip your head in a vat of toxic waste if you think it's going to make you look younger or smooth out your wrinkles. My best piece of advice is to make friends with your wrinkles. Make friends with the things that you really can't do much to change on your face. The sooner you get to forgiving your skin for aging and the sooner you get to get comfy with the fact that you are not going to look like a newborn baby for the length of your life, the better off you'll be. And I have news. It's just, it's not about how perfect you can look all the time. It's how perfect you can look for yourself. You know, again, I tell you all the time, I'm I'm getting up there in age. You know, I work with people half my age or younger most of the time. And it can be very strange and disorienting and frustrating. And every now and then you can get a little insecure and look at the flabby bits on yourself and look at how those wrinkles just kind of start collecting around the old eyes when you laugh and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I clean up real real nice and I like how I look when I dress up and I'll tell you what it's not it's not it's not about looking like I did when I was 20 you know and quite frankly when I was 20 I was a hot mess I was lost I didn't know which end was up and now I know a little bit more now I know a little bit more and I gotta tell you that knowing a little bit more and that wisdom that I have does radiate in a lovely way on my face. And when you start thinking in that kind of way, then maybe you can forgive a couple of wrinkles or a couple of imperfections on your face. And hopefully, you won't go ahead and use harmful things when you know that they're harmful, just in the hopes that it's going to give you a fuller lip or in the hopes that it's going to make your lashes longer. Food for thought. The 1700s were rough on the complexion. Even if you didn't count the filth in which even the richest people lived, there was smallpox to contend with. And by the end of the 18th century, an estimated 400,000 Europeans were dying of it every year. And if you were lucky enough to survive, the, delete, the disease left severe scarring. The best way to cover up these pock marks and other cosmetic imperfections was lead face powder. Both men and women took ad- advantage of it. I mean, it was great stuff, inexpensive and easy to make. It coated well and it had a silky finish. Except even then, it was known to be wildly toxic. And not only did it cause eye inflammation, tooth rot, and baldness, but it also made the skin blacken over time, requiring yet even more of the noxious powder to achieve the pure white face, shoulders, and chest that were oh so fashionable. Ah yes, 
And then there was the fact that it could eventually kill you. Kill you dead. Dunzo. So aside from the fact of trying to look like that damn porcelain doll that has been haunting us throughout the centuries, it could kill you. Now, I know a lot of cultures, a lot of cultures um, extol the virtues of porcelain skin and alabaster skin and everybody wants to look like a bloodless doll. And they have done many, many things over the years. Bleaching of skin, powdering of skin, everything to make themselves look paler and fairer and all of that stuff. And, you know, it has been a ripple effect throughout the the centuries. It's been a ripple effect. And even poor little brown kids have sat there and wondered what the heck was wrong with their skin. Because everywhere they looked, everyone was trying to look lighter impaler and you know there's that but to put it on top of that that the ingredients you use to achieve that could kill you that's telling you something and the fact that people would actually try it yo ah the things we do for beauty and if you think that this is an old tale you are mistaken. It still goes on. I have been in so many uh, beauty shops that have row after row of skin bleaching products and row after row of things that are supposed to fade your skin or bleach your skin or lighten and brighten your skin. There's something terribly, terribly wrong with that. It just makes you think, you know? I mean, what's the big deal? Why is it that important? And I'm hoping along as time goes on, more people will become more comfortable in their skin. Not just because it's a life and death thing, but because they genuinely learn to love the skin that they're in. These these skin tones and colors that we all were born with, it's the it's the rainbow. And we're all different. And it's just like wearing a bunch of colors in your wardrobe. It's beautiful. Yes, please forgive me. I am still sick, still trying to break this. Um, I don't even know what was wrong with me. I just think that something, quote unquote, going around was getting to me as well. I thought it was allergies, but I was so mistaken. And now I'm going through this horrible thing. But you know what? Now that I have faced the truth um, that it's not allergies, I'm hitting hard. And I'm going to do my uh, my regimen, which seems to work usually, which means that I'm going to drink some nice cups of throat coat tea. I'm going to put on my vaporizer and I am going to take my Mucinex. That thing, that bottle is like a billion dollars a bottle, but you know what? It works. And I take the whole thing until it's done for like days or a week or whatever the case but it is worth it because by the end I'm cleaned out and I'm clear and then I'll be able to breathe through my nose and then I'll be able to move on with my life. And if they tell me one day that mucinex is toxic, it is going to be a very 
very grim day. So, you know, let's keep it classy, Musinex. Please don't let me down. I'm now going to jump over to some things that I caught off of thecut.com. There was an article from Cheryl Wishover. I hope I pronounced your name right, Cheryl. But she had a couple good ones in here as well. Uh, one of them specifically was talking about mercury um, when it was discovered in modern cosmetics. And before the days of benzoyl peroxide, mercury was used to cure blemishes and also syphilis, you know. That also spawned this delightful saying, a night with Venus, a lifetime with Mercury. Ew. But it's also absorbed through the skin and can cause birth defects, kidney and liver problems, fatigue, irritability, tremors, depression, and a metallic taste in the mouth. Oh, and one more, death. You know, okay. So aside from the birth defects, the kidney and the liver problems, I definitely have fatigue, irritability, tremors, depression, and occasionally a metallic taste in the mouth, but I think that's just from vaping. You know. What are you gonna do? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, again with the coughing. I really apologize. Um so I also wanted to talk about this one. This was because this is one of those hot things that are going on right now. Eyelash extensions. And we're going to read this little ditty from an 1899 newspaper article about eyelash extensions. It speaks for itself. An ordinary fine needle is threaded with a long hair, generally taken from the head of the person to be operated from. The lower border of the eyelid is then thoroughly cleaned and in order that the process may be as painless as possible, rubbed with a solution of cocaine. The operator then, by a few skillful touches, runs his needle through the extreme edges of the eyelid between the epidermis and the lower border of the cartilage of the tragus. The needle passes in and out along the edge of the lid, leaving its hair thread in loops of carefully graduated length. It continues in some of the same horrifying vein for a few more paragraphs. I will spare you. It's funny how some of the same things that we aspire to were aspired to back in the day. And we may say that some of these techniques and practices were extreme. But when you think about Botox and eye lifts and plastic surgeries and some of the things that people do to this very day to in, just in a struggle to look younger and more youthful, it's not that far off. And there are certain things that we don't know if they're dangerous or not. You know, they're telling us they're okay right now, but who knows, maybe later down the line, they'll tell us they're not. And this is not me knocking cosmetic surgery and things like that, because if you have the money and you want to do something that's going to make you feel a little bit better, 
or if you have something I used to say for myself that I wouldn't want to do plastic surgery unless it was an extreme case if there was something that I really really needed to fix and as a matter of fact I had a lump on my forehead that from head trauma from getting hit in the head I had that a few years ago and I had kept that lump on my head for years actually and it probably would have stayed there because I had hoped that it would go down but it didn't it just kept growing when I didn't know that the fluids were just encapsulating and staying there for quite some time and eventually I did go to a very nice doctor who performed an outpatient surgery and made an incision and took that encapsulated sack of fluid out of my forehead. And now I don't have it. And it I look like I used to look from several years ago. And that is great. Um, the incision was very small. He did a fantastic job. And when I first got the lump, I said to myself, I am going to keep it especially being in the you know a makeup artist and posting social media people were panicking you know I had friends say oh my god what are you gonna do oh you can see it I'm like what are you gonna do and just to be stubborn just the stubborn chick that I am I was insistent upon posting pictures still um with that lump and it was about the size of a golf ball by the time it got to its biggest and I was insistent on keeping it because I refuse to accept that because you have some sort of deformity, um, you are no longer attractive, you're no longer beautiful. Now granted, it's weird to see someone with a lump on them and you kind of wonder, gee, I wonder what happened. But aside from that, that doesn't take points away from you for being an individual and for being attractive in your own skin. You can still do, you know, I still went out. I still was seen out in the world with my lump. And the only thing, the hardest thing, the most annoying thing of having it were strangers who had no manners and who just asked, hey, what happened to your head? What's that? Where'd you get that? Or when it was getting hard to do my job because I had people constantly asking me while I'm trying to help them find their products, they're asking me what happened to my head. And I couldn't go a day without someone asking for some description of what happened. And that I found to be inconvenient. And that I found to be annoying. So I finally got to a point where I made a decision to have it removed. But if it hadn't been for that, I probably would have kept it. Because that is not what defines my standard of beauty. And I wanted to make a point you know, I wanted to make a point that I could still live my life day in and day out with that lump on my head. I even named it and I called it my lopsided unicorn horn. It was Millicent, my lopsided unicorn horn. And I wore that proudly for years. The reason I'm telling you this story is if there's something about you that you don't like, if there's something about you, it could be anything from some pimples to a port wine stain to a scar to a burn it could be anything on you that you don't like you have the option to go to the doctor and have it adjusted um or to be diminished in some way if not removed completely but you also have the option to just accept who you are 
the decision can only be made by you. It's your choice and you have every right to make it. I don't, the thing that I'm concerned about when I talk about these things is I want to make sure that whoever's listening knows that no matter what thing that they're ashamed of on themselves that they don't like and they don't feel comfortable about, make some peace with it in one way or another. Either make the peace that you say, hey, this is who I am and this is how I'm living and then make that beautiful or you can say, you know what, I don't want to deal with this and this is not for me and then you have it removed. But do not do it based off of someone else telling you you should or constantly trying to torment you about it. It has to be your own personal decision. And again, that's why I said that this podcast is from the outside looking in. Because we're not talking about the beauty standard here. We are creating a whole other standard of beauty here on this podcast. And I am so glad that you are here. Thank you. And pencils down. Class is dismissed. And I'll see you next week.